Please stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. We will read a portion of our New Testament lesson from Romans chapter 3, which is significant because it quotes our sermon text in Psalm 14. Romans 3, we'll begin reading in verse 9. We'll read simply down to verse 18. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We'll turn now to the passage, one of many passages that the Apostle Paul was quoting in Romans 3, and that's Psalm 14. We'll read the entirety of this psalm. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Thus ends the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word. Amen. You may be seated. going to give the covenant children permission to speak, something we don't usually do in Presbyterian churches, but I want to encourage a kind of call and response to all the covenant children who know the answers to these questions. Who made you? Just say it. God. What else did God make? God made all things. Is there more than one true God? No, there is only one true God. You all did pretty well. Uh, My three-year-old, who's back home sick, um, knows the answers to these questions. My other kids do as well, but it's amazing to me that even at three years of age, he can answer all of these questions right off the bat. These are profound truths. Where did I come from? Who made me? Is there more than one true God? And yet, they're simple enough that even a three-year-old's can to some degree grasp them and confess them. 
If that's the case, then why do some people, including some really smart people, deny the existence of God? Why do some people, even some really smart people, also claim that you can't know whether God exists? Why are there agnostics and atheists in the world? For instance, perhaps you remember even a few years back the the rise of the new atheists, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, the late Christopher Hitchens. They were all smart people. But each of them, to a man, denied the existence of God. Uh, Christopher Hitchens even called himself an anti-theist, not just indifferent to, but hostile against the very concept of God. As you think about that, that can be rather discouraging or even intimidating. And it's not just intellectual elites like Richard Dawkins Our national institutions are becoming increasingly anti-God, anti-Christ. We find rampant unbelief in the civil government, in the academy, in the media, in the arts, and in the sciences. Now, on the flip side, we could point to plenty of brilliant, influential people who do profess the name of Christ. And that number only grows if we consider the rest of the world and the flow of history but even then, it's, it's easy to become discouraged or even intimidated when the movers and shakers of a country, by and large, reject the claims of our Lord. With this challenge in mind, let's turn to Psalm 14. If you skip ahead to Psalm 53, you'll find that these two psalms are almost identical in language, placed in very different places of the Psalter. This is a psalm of David. It's written to the chief musician. And what's interesting about this psalm with Psalm 53 is it gives us an inspired assessment of atheism. Atheists enjoy passing judgment on God, but there are times when God flips the script and says, now it's my turn to pass judgment on atheists. Look at verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Not the remarkably intelligent man, not the intellectual elite, but God calls him the fool who says there is no God. Congregation, regardless of natural intelligence, IQ score, native abilities, social influence, if somebody denies the existence of God at a fundamental level, God says they are a fool. Why is that? Well, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to be wise, you must fear God. And because of that, congregation, I want to exhort you and encourage you, uh, do not be discouraged or intimidated by unbelief. For God is with the generation of the righteous. Jehovah is your refuge. 
This morning we're going to consider the psalm from three perspectives. What the fool said, what the Lord saw, and what the psalmist sang. The fool, the Lord, and the psalmist. First, what the fool said. Let's look at verse 1 again. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The word for fool in the Hebrew is Nabal. And that probably had some personal significance for David. He interacted with a man named Nabal. A man whose name meant fool. The Nabal, the fool, has said in his heart, literally, no God. Now this phrase could refer to an intellectual denial of God's existence, what we think of as an atheist, or it could refer to the moral rejection of God's will. I don't believe God exists, or I don't care what God has to say. But either way, it describes a kind of atheism. Now you could say, do they have atheists back thousands of years ago? Well, congregation, the answer is yes, they did. As long as sin has been in the world, man has had a tendency to raise his fist against heaven and either morally or intellectually to deny the reality of God. Go back to the Garden of Eden. Who is the first entity to question God? It was the serpents, it was the evil one who said, Yea, hath God said? Did he really say that? That was the seed of atheism planted in the mind of our first parents. Now, atheism can take different forms. It can be theoretical, a kind of atheism of the head, or it can be practical, an atheism of the heart. And both of them are problems. Both of them are foolish. First, atheism in theory is foolish. This is the atheism of the head. This is intellectual atheism, the standpoint of the new atheist that I already listed. And it's foolish, and I don't care who's talking to you, whether it's a professor in university or a talking head on YouTube, it doesn't matter who they are. If they intellectually deny the existence of God, they are a fool. And I say that because the existence of God is self-evident and demonstrable to man. It's self-evident and demonstrable. I love how our larger catechism puts it. Well, how doth it appear that there is a God, the very light of nature in man and the works of God declare plainly that there is a God. That's why my three-year-old can say, God made me. God made all things. There is only one true God, because God reveals this truth to us, not merely in the pages of Holy Scripture, but even in the light of nature. God's written his law on our hearts. That's why even unbelievers, even atheists, have a concept of right and wrong, an implanted knowledge of God in every image bearer on the face of the earth. And not only that, but it's demonstrable. You can look at the works of creation, the works of providence, and you can see cause and effect. You can 
connect the dots and realize there must have been an ultimate cause. You see purpose and design. There must have been someone who had an end in mind. You see motion everywhere. Well, who was the first person to put that into motion? It's demonstrable. In fact, Cornelius Van Til liked to say that without God, there's no foundation for meaning, value, or significance. We're just matter in motion, and yet nobody lives that way. Uh, the existence of God is the precondition for true knowledge of anything. Or as C.S. Lewis puts it, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Self-evident and demonstrable. Anyone who denies the existence of God is denying his clear revelation in nature. What does Psalm 19 say? The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Romans 1 says that it is clearly seen, God's invisible attributes from the visible things he has made, so that everyone on the face of the earth is without an excuse, literally without an apologetic. And yet, somehow, people like Dawkins, Dennett, Harris, and Hitchens deny this clear revelation. I'll give you one example. Uh, Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist, was once asked what he would say to God in the event that he stood before him at his death. Here's what that proud man said. I probably would ask, sir, why did you not give me better evidence? Elsewhere, he's quoted as simply saying, not enough evidence. That would be his answer to the Almighty for rejecting him. Not enough evidence. And you have to wonder, what kind of evidence would have changed Bertrand Russell's mind? A voice from heaven? A miraculous sign? The parting of the Red Sea? A resurrection from the dead? Uh, Russell was a smart man, but I'm convinced that no quantity or quality of new evidence would have altered his position because that really wasn't the root problem. And I can say that because of an analogous situation. Luke 16 is the parable of Lazarus. And in that story, our Lord Jesus recounts a conversation between Abraham and the rich man. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. The rich man says, Father Abraham, send someone else so they can be warned to change their ways before it's too late. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. They just need more evidence. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Bertrand Russell's problem wasn't around it. Inundated barraged by evidence, the light of nature inside him, the works of creation and providence all around him. He had Bibles in his language sitting on his coffee table. He had God shouting in his ear, I exist, repent. 
The problem wasn't that he needed more evidence. His problem was his stubborn refusal to acknowledge the evidence. Like so many people, he gouged out his eyes and complained that he couldn't see. He plugged his ears and claimed that he could not hear. He decided on the front end that no contrary evidence would count and that he was the ultimate arbiter of truth. Russell was smart, but he was not wise. He was a fool. Deep down, he knew that God existed, and he suppressed, he pushed down his knowledge of that truth until he became, tragically, self-deceived. In those cases, what does it take? What gives? How can a man like that come to a knowledge of the truth? And I omitted the rest of the larger catechism question where it says, but God's word and spirit only do sufficiently and effectually reveal him unto men for their salvation. Maybe you have an unbelieving neighbor or family member, and you've given them the best arguments they could have ever heard. You've created mounds of evidence, and they still don't believe. You have to understand that they are blinded by the God of this age. You have to understand that they are surrounded by evidence already, but their hearts are not willing to acknowledge that fact. And so, yes, use arguments, but realize that you need the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God to unlock the prison of their minds and to bring them to saving faith in Jesus. Well, regardless, atheism in theory is just plain foolish. And I think we, at least most of us, would see that. But there's another kind of atheism that strikes a little closer to home, and that is atheism in practice, which is also foolish. This is not so much atheism of the head as it is atheism of the heart. And this can be true even of those who profess faith in Jesus. What do I mean? How could a professing Christian be a practical atheist? Well, this is what happens when you think, speak, and act as if there is no God. Or you go about your business, you go about your day, but you never really factor God into the equation, where the reality of the final judgment has zero impact on how you live your life. You're almost numb to God. You would profess God with your lips, but your heart is far from him. And if that's the case, whether you believe in theory, you're living as a practical atheist. Well, if atheism is foolish, regardless of the form, fearing God is wise. Fearing God is wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and of wisdom. Although demonstrable through reason, the existence of God is also an article of faith. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Congregation, this is the only wise way to live. This is the only way to please God and to inherit eternal life. Hebrews 11.6 But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is 
and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so this morning I set before you the two ways. There's only two. There's wisdom and there's folly. You can be God-fearing or you can be God-denying. I call you, whether theoretical or practical, in your head or in your heart, I call you to repent of atheism. Repent and believe in the gospel. Believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Well, that's what the fool said. There is no God. There's a second perspective, and that's what the Lord saw. What the Lord saw. Look at verse 2. The Lord Jehovah, Yahweh, looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. God, in the third heaven, the highest heaven, looks down. He investigates as a judge and considers, is there anyone who's wise? He looks literally at the sons of Adam, the children of men, And what does he see? Verse 3, they have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. God looks down. God looked down in the days of Noah. And he saw that every intent of man's heart was only evil continually. So bad that he sent a worldwide flood to wipe them out. God looked down in the days just before Abraham. And he saw a city. In fact, he had to, the text says, come down to see this city, this Tower of Babel. And God looked down and passed judgment and scattered those people. Genesis 18, God looked down on Sodom and Gomorrah and he saw pride and he saw autonomy and he saw inhospitality and he saw homosexual perversion and he passed judgment on that city. He sent down messengers with fire and sulfur and brimstone. Over and over again, God from heaven looks down upon the sons of Adam and investigates and all too often finds There's none righteous, no, not one, and fire falls from heaven. These verses are pretty bleak. None who does good, no, not one. It sometimes sounds a little bit like today. You think about Pride Month, where in our stores, on the the retail websites, everything is decked out with high-handed rebellion. Well, that's what the Lord saw in the days of David. He saw none righteous, no, not one. Now, when you read those verses, at least for me, my question is, are there any exceptions to this blanket judgment? Epitomized in the atheist, are there any exceptions Is righteousness an empty category? There's a final movement in the psalm. 
from what the fool said, what the Lord saw, finally, what the psalmist sang. The psalmist asks a question in verse 4. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? He's troubled by what he sees. And then he says in verse 5, Therefore they are in great fear, these wicked men, These theoretical and or practical atheists are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. And here we realize that there are exceptions to the rule. That in the days of high-handed wickedness, just before the flood, there was at least one righteous man in his generation. It's the same Hebrew word. It's also used in Psalm 14 for the generation of the righteous. It was Noah and his household who climbed aboard the ark. We know that in Sodom, though that was a wicked city, and there wasn't even ten righteous men to spare it, there was a relatively righteous lot whom Lord delivered and brought out of the fires of judgments. Think of men like Job and Daniel David himself. Indeed, there are 7,000 in the days of Elijah who have not bowed their knee to Baal. Sometimes we read passages like this, and we read the first few verses, and we think, I guess there's absolutely nobody who seeks after God. And God says, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. There is a Noah in his generation. There is an Abraham, even a lot or a Job, or a Daniel, or a David, or a Elijah. And this is not because these men are somehow special, but because the God of the covenant is faithful. God is with the generation of the righteous. The Lord is your refuge. And those who do not fear God in the good sense will have reason to fear him in the bad sense, as they come under great dread, not as sons but as enemies, not as subjects, but as rebels. And this thought of the great divide between the righteous and the wicked gives the psalmist hope as he sings in verse 7, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. There is salvation through the flood, through the Red Sea. There is return from exile. There is hope for those who put their trust in the Lord. And that is what the psalmist sang. If we read this psalm on its own terms in relative isolation, there might still be another question bubbling under the surface. It's a good question. And it's this, I understand that Noah was blameless in his generation, like Job, like Daniel, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like David before the Philistines. But if these men, however righteous, were to stand before the strict judgment of a thrice holy God, a God before whom the seraphim cover their faces with their wings, Would they really be able to stand? Could any fallen, creaturely image bearer of God stand before the strict, 
absolute justice of God. If God really looked down, whose eyes behold the evil and the good, if he really looked down and got into the nooks and crannies of David's heart, the same David who sinned with Bathsheba and who killed Uriah the Hittite, would David be able to stand? In fact, when Paul uses this passage, he seems to be making the point in Romans chapter 3 that this really is total comprehensive depravity. That whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile, you're busted. You're broken. Your mouth is stopped. You have no defense. Is there really hope for humanity if we consider the strict justice of the God who looks down? The congregation, I tell you with great joy that in an ultimate sense, there is one who understands. And there is one who seeks God. And there is one who does good. And there is one righteous man whose righteousness not only exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, but his righteousness exceeds that of Noah and Lot and Job and Daniel and David and all the saints of the Old and New Testaments put together and beyond. This man was holy, harmless, undefiled. This man was perfect as his Father in heaven was perfect. And I tell you that as God looked down in justice upon Noah's generation, upon Babel, and upon Sodom, the Son of God also came down. Not in a strict display of justice upon sinners, but one who came down in mercy. As G.K. Chesterton said, drop it, stop, I'm coming down. That just as God came down in judgment upon Babel, he sent down his son in salvation upon his people. Jesus Christ, the son of God, took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. He became flesh and he dwelt among us, the righteous who was obedient unto his Father, even to the death of the cross. Jesus, in an ultimate sense, is the one righteous man. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. There's none who does good. No, not one. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As a righteous man, the just for the unjust, Jesus went to the cross. And when God looked down upon Calvary, what did he see? He saw the perfect sacrifice. Blameless, righteous, bloody for sinners. And God was pleased by the sweet-smelling aroma of his son on that tree of the curse. And as a righteous man, he did not remain dead. Indeed, he was declared righteous in his resurrection. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. 
Truly, these times of ignorance, God has overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus is risen. The just for the unjust who was delivered over for our transgressions and was raised for our justification. And when you consider Jesus, the inbreaking of, of God's Son into the world, nobody has any excuses. You don't have any excuses because of the light of nature in man, the works of creation and providence, but you realize that in the fullness of time, someone has come from heaven, lived a perfect life, died an atoning death, has raised again from the dead and is seated in the heavenly places. This is a historical fact. And there's no excuses for anyone to be a skeptic. The only answer is to put down your arms, repent, believe in Jesus. In the meantime, in the meantime, considering what the fool said, what the Lord saw, and what the psalmist sang, I call upon all of you to repent of all forms of atheism and to believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. In him, you are reckoned among the generation of the righteous. By his Spirit's power, you are enabled in this life to bring forth fruits of righteousness. And so by faith in Jesus, understand, seek God, do good unto all. The Lord is at hand. Atheism is truly the height of folly but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So do not be discouraged or intimidated by unbelief. God is with the generation of the righteous. Jehovah is your refuge. Amen. Let's pray.